Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right, good morning, everyone. It's a nice, nice sunny morning today. Um, glad to be here with you all week two. It's always fun when people come back to week two, not going to lie. Uh, that's always a good sign. Um, we're going to start today in kind of, a, kind of with a weird question, uh, especially if you know Acts 2, you're kind of like, okay, so why is this question on the board? If you can't read it, here's the question I want to ask at the very beginning of our time together this morning. Do we, meaning we as in the church, but we can also just say, do I, okay, personally, okay? Do we ever get distracted And the answer to that is absolutely yes. Do we ever get distracted by coming to the Bible, to the text, with what we want it to say or emphasize? And then what are the consequences? What are the consequences of that? So just for kind of the opening little bit of conversation, I'm never going to call on you. So if you hate conversation, that's okay. I do too. Um, I'm just in front of you all, so I have to talk. Um, But the answer to that question, I'm kind of curious to get your opinions. Do we ever come to the Bible with what we want it to say, and what are the consequences of that? The answer is yes, we do. So then, so then the, the, ask, the, you know, the ask after that is, so what are some of the consequences maybe? Okay. Yeah, the distraction is the key word, right? We're actually going to miss what it's trying to emphasize and therefore go off kind of on our own direction, either of emphasis or even of just like completely missing the point. John Ortberg calls this a shadow mission. I love that image. Uh, Maybe it's like the boy in me that loves like military literature, things like that. But the shadow mission, it's this mission that's under the mission, that's not really the mission. But we make it the main thing and we get distracted and we go off doing our thing and God's going, that wasn't exactly what I was trying to do anyhow. Now, I want to say that as we get into Acts 2, this is another one of those texts where this is actually easy for us to do. Uh, We will ask the question today, so what's going on in Pentecost with this whole like tongues of fire, speaking in tongues thing? But I want to encourage you, even though we'll we'll land there, I want to encourage you to remember that that's actually not the main point of Acts chapter 2. And so we want to ask the question, so what is the main thing without getting distracted? And we still want to have our questions. I want you to know this. Questions are okay. But the problem is, is if we get distracted by those questions or if we make those questions the main thing and we never get back to this. Um, Here's where I see this happen in the church. Oftentimes, this is going back to my background and my church background growing up. We would actually preach against opinions of what other believers thought about certain texts more than we would trying to get people to be a disciple of Jesus. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Is that a lot of what we talk about was merely just a debate about non-essential issues that we really never could firmly land on the answer to those issues. And then people get disillusioned with the church and disillusioned with scripture and disillusioned with Jesus. I wonder why, because we were distracted rather than pointing people to Jesus, okay? So here's what I am gonna say with this. It's a difficult text, some of what goes on here. And so we'll have some possible solutions. It's either this or it's this, and maybe we don't fully yet know. There is kind of a mystery to the Holy Spirit, by the way. Maybe that's just true of me. And and so we will come to some of those questions and try to answer some of those without trying to be distracted. Uh, By way of remembrance, by way of looking back to last week, we want to remember that Acts chapter 1, verse 1 started. uh, The gospel of Jesus started in Luke And now Luke is writing about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, and now it's going to continue in the book of Acts. So we said this statement. In the book of Acts, we continue the ministry and the mission of Jesus, and we face the same opposition of Jesus. So I want to remember those three words, ministry, mission, opposition. That's one of the ways we keep ourselves from being distracted is the book of Acts is an extension of Jesus's life and ministry. And we, as Jesus's disciples, follow him and look like him and also experience some of the same things that he does. All right, I don't know if this is true of you, but sometimes I feel a little in over my head. I know that was a weird segue. Sometimes that happens, okay? So weird segue. Um, I should have prayed there. That's how we do things sometimes in church leadership. We just pray, then we have the segue. But, But do you ever feel in over your head with the task you're called to do? I remember my daughter is in a freshman in high school. 
I remember uh, putting her car seat in the car. She was born six weeks premature. We didn't have a car seat. I had to go to Walmart or wherever uh, while my wife was in the hospital to go get one because we didn't expect her to come early. And I remember that first moment of fumbling, putting the car seat in the car, and then the first moment of like putting her in the car and taking her home. Parenting has a way of making you feel a little in over your head. Um, you, you know this. There are certain tasks where you go, I, I don't know how to do this. I, I remember the first time I was in ministry, a preacher at a church in Illinois, and my job was to make disciples and go impact people for Jesus. And I remember that same kind of feeling of like, I'm in over my head. I'm 24 years old. What do I know? Can you imagine being 12 apostles, 12 disciples? There's 120 as well who are followers of Jesus that are in town. Uh, Paul says that there were over 500 who witnessed Jesus post-resurrection, but you're a pretty small group. This is a small church at this point in time, church of 120. That's the kind of church, size of church I grew up in. So imagine that that's the only church in like the world. And Jesus has said, you're going to go out and you're going to make disciples of all nations. And not to mention that, but your church is made up of like, I don't know, blue collar folk. I mean, this is my dad cut grass for a living. So this is my family growing up. My uncles were carpenters and truck drivers. This is my family. You put them in a church of 120. This is the church I grew up in. Very blue collar town in, in ranching uh, county, Colorado. And, and so if you come to that church of 120 and say, this little church with these uneducated men and women are going to go out and they're going to transform the world as in like educated Rome. You, you kind of imagine that sense of like overwhelming feeling, like taking a kid home going, how am I going to raise this person to be a responsible adult in this world? How am I going to lead this church? How am I going to build this business? How am I going to do this? You can imagine the 12 feeling that way. And so one of the things that we need to pay attention to is that they're waiting they're waiting for the Spirit to come because God said, I'm going to go with you in this task. You don't have to do this alone. So for us to not get distracted in this text, there's the segue where I pull those two, two ideas together. For us to not get distracted in this text, one of the primary things we need to recognize is that we don't go about our work extending the ministry and the mission of Jesus and when we face opposition, we don't go into that work alone. I'm grateful for that when I pray at night over my kids. God, I have no idea how to shape the attitudes of my kids and change what I just saw today. But I need you to surround them at, at church, for instance, with other people who can speak into their lives. I'm thankful for D Group because I have some college age and, and young adult ladies who speak into my high school daughter's life. And when they say the same things as I do, guess what my daughter goes does? Oh, she's so amazing. I, she's so smart. I love her. And she just speaks truth to my heart. I'm like, I have been saying that to you for six months. And, and that's an answer to prayer because the Holy Spirit goes with me in this task, goes with us in this task and shapes us. When I speak the word of God, in fact, my verse, I told you I have a billboard space on my phone where I try to have these uh, meditations from scripture. I mean, it's, if you're going to have your phone out all the time, you might as well put scripture there. And, and so my, my verse this week was Isaiah 55, 11, And I quoted it for you last week. I'll change it today. As rain and seed, so my word goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. That is the power of God's word and the Spirit using that word to change us, to transform us. So when I come to Acts chapter 2, and I told, I told Scott Ensminger this and some of the people who are in the, the bookstore up here in the lobby, I was like, you never know what you're going to get into when you come into a room and you're teaching Acts chapter 2. Because there's all kinds of questions, all kinds of dialogue, all kinds of debate, and, and it's good. But I'm afraid sometimes I have been, and I know this is true of some of the churches I've been a part of, I don't want it to be true here, is that sometimes we get distracted by the debate and the dialogue and the questions that we don't necessarily know or the confusion, and we actually miss the main thing, which is God promising to send his spirit to dwell with us, to do in us what we can't do on our own, which is make disciples of other people. Do you realize, like, you have no power to change someone else and transform them into what God has created them to be? You don't have that power. You don't have that ability. You don't have those words of wisdom. Like, who are you? Who am I? There's nothing more intimidating than to stand up and speak 
I was 23 when I started preaching to a church of 400. And I wasn't even a dad. I had been a husband for all of a year. I was standing up going, I have no authority to be up here. And the answer is, I still don't at 42. The only authority we have that brings transformation is the word of God. That's why you'll see uh, God's word as centric in our church. And it's the Holy Spirit who's able to take that word and able to recreate in people something new. This is what is going on in Acts chapter two is these 12 disciples um, with Matthias filling in Judas's spot, extending that out a little bit. The 120 are gathered around them. They're, they're part of this small church in Jerusalem that's gathered for this festival called Pentecost. And then beyond that, there are believers in other regions. So I want us to pay attention to that dynamic that's going on. Okay, there's, there's your introduction, shorter than last week, okay? Um, we do wanna open up our Bibles to Acts chapter two. And when we do, um, we're gonna read the first verse. This sounds like something Dalrymple's gonna do because I often do this. Let's read one verse and then stop. Ah, that's how that goes, okay? So let's read Acts chapter two, verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Stop. Uh, so what is Pentecost? We alluded to this last week. I wanted you to have it in your handout. Uh, the festival of Pentecost was a, a Greek name given to a Jewish festival there was a harvest festival. So it's called the Feast of Weeks. You can go back to the Old Testament and you can see the description of this festival. And in an agricultural community, you know this, we celebrate harvest. Passover is the beginning of the year and it's the celebration, Passover is, celebration of the first fruits of the spring harvest. Uh, you know this in some, in some uh, cultures, there's multiple harvests. You could harvest wheat and then you could harvest another crop again later. Okay, I am not an expert at that, but growing up and being in Colorado and then Illinois, we raise cattle in Colorado and sugar beets and corn and soybeans in Illinois. Um, and it's amazing to me what farmers know about seasons. But this agricultural community that, that is Palestine celebrated Passover first fruits. 50 days later was actually seven weeks later. That makes sense, right? The math, seven times seven plus a day is the seventh Sunday of seven weeks and then a Sunday after what we would call Easter, after Passover. Now, numbers do matter to, to those who are Jewish in background. And so oftentimes you get seven weeks and you go, that's a whole number, isn't it? That's, a, that's an important number. That's a completion number. Yeah, it is. So I want you to start putting like the significance of this feast, just like lock that in your brain for just a moment. Okay, so this is not the Feast of first fruits. That was Passover, as in like the weekend Jesus rose from the dead, the first fruit to raise from the dead. Oh, wait a second. Then Jesus hangs around, Acts chapter one told us, for 40 more days. It's Acts chapter one where we learned that. 40 days, is that kind of important? Yeah, because 40, 40 years or 40 days in the wilderness, that's the kind of number where when you're journeying with someone through a time of transition, you're learning about God revealing himself to you. Was Jesus doing that for 40 days? Yeah, he did. Then he left, wait here. I do that to my kids and I know what it's like. They, they're like, how long? Wait here, 10 days is how long they wait until we get to Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost is the Greek word for 50th and it's the Jewish feast of weeks. That word 50th, again, just describes those days. It helps us to understand. But I think the fact that this is a feast of harvest and we're getting ready to have a harvest of 3,000 added to this number of 120 is just a little bit significant. Jesus talks about being Lord of the harvest. He talks about sending workers out into the harvest field in the gospels. He talks about them bringing back a harvest that they didn't really even plant it's just them being able to celebrate. This is an image in the Old Testament of what the Messiah was going to do. He was going to bring in people from all of the nations and the exiles, the Jewish people who had left Israel because of the, the persecution and the issues caused by Assyria and Babylon and now Rome. They're in all of these regions. We'll talk about the map in just a moment. They're all gathered back in for this Feast of Harvest, one of the more popular festivals. And Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God's sovereignty, that's when the harvest of first fruit or final fruits come in for this kind of launch of the church. This is a big deal that this is happening here. In your bullet points on number three, I also mentioned uh, scholars note that this is one of three of the major pilgrimage feasts for those living outside of Palestine, living outside of Jerusalem. 
So if you lived in some of these exterior regions in the Roman Empire, you would try to make it back to Jerusalem for one of these. And scholars have noticed because of the time of year for travel, this was one of the more popular feasts to come back to. I find that also just a, I mean, this is God winking at his sovereignty, isn't it? Hey, so if you're going to time this right, like, I don't know, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Um, I'm, this is God having a meeting. I don't, you know, let's time that over Passover where the sacrificial lamb is sacrificed and it symbolizes um, blood being put over the doorposts so that judgment can pass over my people and they could go out into the wilderness and wander and then go into the promised land. Oh yeah, let's time it right there. And if I'm going to time this right, you know, because I'm God, if I'm going to time this right, this is a little C.S. Lewis where you're trying to just put words in God's mouth. I'm I'm going to time this right. Let's wait 50 days because of all the symbolism. And let's put it at a time when the maximum capacity of outsiders representing the nations, the Jewish people living amongst the nations are in town for that event. I mean, if we're going to throw a party, let's throw it there. I love that about God. I've seen this sometimes in my life where his timing, you're like, what are you doing? And then you go, oh, that's exactly what you're doing. And as God pulls those things together. Now, this little moment, sometimes in the midst of our life, we don't see it. We're in that little 10-day waiting period. Or we're like the disciples after Good Friday, Saturday, waiting. What's God going to do next? It's dark. It looks hopeless. We're there. Over and over again in Scripture, that's actually where I find myself most often. And, And if you count the days in Scripture... That's where people find themselves most often as well, is in between God acting. Here's what I trust in faith. I'm going to get to the, to the promised land. Uh, you know, hymns often talk about the other side of the river. I'm, I'm going to talk, get to the promised land, and I'm going to see God's work unfolded. And what Romans says is that everything will be good. We could say it is good about God's creation and about God's plan. Similar to this kind of moment right here where we go, wow, God, you're good. You put this together on purpose. And, and I, I have to sometimes live in trust that that's going to be true in my life and in my pain and in my doubts as well. Great questions. Dennis, you had your hand up. I was just wondering what you thought if, if the disciples, you think the disciples were aware I, this could be the day? I don't know. Yeah, it's, it is one of those weird dynamics to where they're waiting. They connecting the feast and, and in their own mind, I bet it's going to be, I bet it's going to be there's some dynamics that are going on here that, that, again, here's part of the interesting thing about the disciples. Most of the time in the Gospels, you know this about them, they have no clue. I mean, so I kind of want to assume that they have no clue because that's kind of the personification they're given in the, in the Gospels. But after they spend those 40 days with Jesus, they start to reinterpret the Old Testament around what God had done through the, through the cross and through the resurrection. And they start to see, I think Jesus points out things. It's not that they just miraculously start to see things. It's that Jesus reveals himself to them. And they start to see things like Joel 2 today. We'll talk about that text. Or some of David's Psalms. Because Jesus walked with them and he said, have you seen this text, Isaiah 53? Have you seen this text in the Old Testament? Have you seen what Passover is? Do you remember Passover? We just did that in the upper room. So maybe there is a point where Jesus has pointed these things out and shown that all of them were pointing to him anyhow. And this is a great opportunity for them to go, if you're going to have harvest, might as well be now. And it's the end of that harvest season. Okay. Other, other questions? Yeah. So like I agree, you said it's the Holy Spirit's job to bring in yeah. the harvest of souls, right? Yeah. So today, in our present day, <laughs> I mean, how, how do we, like I talk about at work, I talk about the Lord all the time, yeah. right? But I haven't really led anybody to Jesus as far as, yeah. you know, perceive that we said the sinner's prayer or whatever, yeah. you know? Yeah. So even in our workplaces today, it's, it's, it's still going to be the same, right? There, there's a dynamic. Isaiah's told this as well. Like God's word's going to go out and some people are going to harden their hearts. So the Holy Spirit's not going to force someone not going to force someone to follow Jesus. But I do want to say this. I do want to say this about this text. Sometimes we want the Holy Spirit to do the miraculous. And what the Holy Spirit does is does exactly what Jesus taught us to do, which is to go out of our comfort zones and to be empowered by him to do what is impossible in our own, but allows the word of God to make that transformation in the lives of people. So some of it is the Holy Spirit sometimes prompts us to get out of our comfort zone and do what we can't do on our own. So some of that is, I don't have all the answers. You ever feel that way? 
Um, I'm standing up in front of you all teaching on Acts chapter 2. I'm studying last night, again, this text. Why? Because I know I don't have all the answers. Sometimes, in faith, you have to stand up and have a conversation with someone at work or in your family, not because you have all the answers, but because Jesus has changed your heart and he's called you to go out and you need the Holy Spirit to help you in that moment, don't you? Now, here's what I'll, here's what I'll say. This is, this is something a teacher told me when I was in college and it changed me. What are you doing today that you can't do on your own that you need the help of the Holy Spirit to accomplish for God's sake, for Christ's honor, so that someone has an eternal difference in their lives made? If you don't feel the Holy Spirit working in your life, maybe it is because you're not doing anything that moves you outside of the, if this is the upper room or whatever room they're in, into the moment where you need to actually stand up and make a bold declaration of who Jesus is, what he's done in your life. So we're gonna continue to unpack because we're gonna see the Holy Spirit, I mean, throughout the book of Acts. In fact, let me, let me stop here to say this. Um, it's later on in, in kind of my thought process, but, but I think this is a good spot to put it. There's actually a debate about what to title the book of Acts. Some of your Bibles have the Acts of the, what? Apostles. That's true. But behind that, you have the Acts of the, this is the debate, Acts of the Holy Spirit. And the answer would be, yes, both of them, therefore the summary, the book of Acts. Because it's the Acts of the Spirit through the disciples, through the church. And this must always be the case. No matter what, now we're going to have great, I mean, I'm just going to use some of our terms, business plans, marketing plans, um, great leadership, all of those things. None of those things can do what the Holy Spirit can. And, And we need the Holy Spirit. I'll be honest with this. We need the Holy Spirit to make some of the changes we need to make in the people, just in our community here, let alone in the world. I I promise you this. Like I just look, I have a high school daughter, junior high son, elementary daughter. I'm raising them, asking for the Holy Spirit for help. Here's what I also know. We can't change our community for some of the things that are dark and desperate and hopeless and broken without the work of the Holy Spirit doing something new and doing something powerful through us if we step out on faith. Broken families is just one of those things that's kind of take, taken for granted. How do we help bring healing? Not necessarily go back and, and, and just bring shame. How do we actually bring healing and how do we help going forward in future generations? How do we help do these things? I know this because I've prayed this prayer. God, go where I can't go. Do what I can't do. Speak in places I can't speak to do things that I can't do. I hope you're praying that prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit to do those kinds of things. Remember what I said about prayer? Everything happens in the New Testament in the book of Acts because the disciples are gathered together in prayer. Okay, a couple... What is, what is the New Testament? But it's renewing, but it's re- renew. So yeah, there's actually like six Greek words for the word new. Unfortunately, we have new, and it's only like, I bought a new truck. Now, you know when I say I bought a new truck, it's new to me, not new off the assembly line. So the Greek word would have had a different word, a renewed creation And when you are made new, it is how God made you first. And then he takes and he recreates in you through the Holy Spirit into the you, the image of you he intended you to be all along. By the way, new heaven, new earth, same thing. It's a renewed heaven and earth that is redesigned in the way God has intended it all along. Um, So that word new is really important. Okay, last thing I want to mention in this chapter one, verse one. We can actually take this entire chapter and section it up into three sections. Okay, number one is the waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and the coming of the Holy Spirit. There's section number one. Section number two is Peter's sermon, and it's a summary of Peter's sermon, okay? This would be like the short, imagine, P, uh, imagine Mark uh, Christian getting up preaching this sermon, it'd be like five minutes and he'd sit back down, okay? This is a summary of Peter's sermon. And then what we have is, that we'll get to next week is the response to that sermon. How does the church then respond? And so chapter 2, verse 42 and beyond is where we'll start next week when we talk about the early church and some of the attributes of the early church. Okay, so we are, uh, when it comes to timeline, we are in May-June on when it comes to this. So time for travel, it's warm, there's a number of people in town. I do want us to remember, because we have this parallel with the book of Luke, when Jesus is getting ready to start his ministry, he is baptized. That's significant because we're going to see baptism at the end of this text. When he's baptized, the Father says, now you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit at baptism. So when we say we baptize you into the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it's relational language. Okay, it's not a magic incantation. It's relational. But when Jesus is baptized at the beginning of his public ministry, the Father says, you're my son. 
It's a confession, isn't it? Okay, Holy Spirit descends and empowers Jesus and in fact then leads him out into the wilderness for temptation. Don't you anticipate that after your baptism? Temptation in the wilderness, okay? And it, so we have this dynamic where the Holy Spirit comes before the public ministry of Jesus those three and a half years. What do we have at the beginning of part two, the book of Acts? Before the public ministry of the church, we need the Holy Spirit to come empower that ministry and dwell with them and lead them in that ministry. This is, this is an extension. I just want you to see, this is an extension of Jesus's ministry is what we have going on at Pentecost as well. Okay, other questions before we dive into verse two, uh, really through the next few verses. Okay, so let's go ahead and read through chapter uh, two, verse two. And suddenly, this is what makes me think it's a surprise, by the way. Suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like, now my kids studying English would recognize this, that this is, a, this is a metaphor, a simile, okay? So this is not a wind, but it's a sound like a rushing wind, I don't know if you've ever been in a house or a building with like open windows. This is first century after all, okay? They don't have pillow windows uh, installed, okay? I, I don't know what the best brand is. I have no idea, but there you go. Um, so they're in an open, open building and there's this sound of a rushing wind, but not wind. That's weird, not gonna lie, okay? So I've been in hurricanes in Haiti. I've felt rushing wind, seen rushing wind, okay? Uh, let alone... I don't know, whether here in Joplin, Missouri. It doesn't take much, right? Um, but this, is a, this word, this concept of wind, okay, oftentimes we see this in the Old Testament associated with the presence of God. So this, this um, it would be, the technical word is a theophany. Okay? It just means God is making himself present or known. Okay? So this would have been seen as an image of God's, God's presence coming. Jesus says, if I go away, it's okay, I'm going to be with you always to the very end of the age. Okay, God has always been wanting to dwell with us. This is part of what's happening here. And it filled the entire house or place where they were sitting. Then it divided these tongues of fire. Now, again, this is an image, okay, that appeared to be, but these tongues of fire. So you look at a fire. I have a fireplace. And one of the things you know about a fire is that it licks up, then it looks like tongues. Okay, so this is an image of what this looks like. In the Old Testament, again, we have to go, how would they have understood the imagery here? What's going on here? Well, fire, again, is oftentimes present when God makes himself present. You could go back to Moses and the giving of the law. Oh, I forgot to mention. In the first century world, they also started celebrating the Feast of Weeks, <coughs> Passover, or excuse me, Pentecost. Uh, they not only celebrated the harvest, they started celebrating the giving of the law of Moses. Why? Well, if you do the chronology, Passover celebrates what? Coming out of Egypt. If you do the chronology, the counting of the story, about 40, 50 days later, where are they at? Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. Interesting. What happens on Mount Sinai? Moses goes up into the presence of God. Huh, interesting. So all of this, I think they're able to unpack and go, oh, yeah, God was showing himself to be present with us. Okay, and I think that's significant. When these tongues of fire rested on each of them, notice this individually comes down on each of them, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll need to ask that question. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, again, I always start with, what does it look like in the Old Testament? Oftentimes, the Spirit of God was given to individuals or especially an individual to complete a specific task that they were called to complete on God's behalf. Now, sometimes these people weren't even necessarily God-fearers or believers, God would send his spirit on them to equip them for a task, and then the spirit would be removed. But this filling, if we're going to take just the Old Testament concept and not import some of our own conversations in the first century, or excuse me, the 20th century, some of our own denominational debates we've had, if we're just going to come back to the first century world and say, how would they have understood the filling of the Holy Spirit? It's we have a task to do, and God has now given us, and it's more than just one individual. It's more than just David and Goliath, toward Goliath. It's God has come down and he has filled us with his spirit to equip us for this task that's about ready to take place that we can't do on our own. And there are terms and they're a little bit slippery and a little bit loose. We want to like scientifically dissect them in the New Testament, but there are various terms for this. So we have filling with the Holy Spirit. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and we have baptism of the Holy Spirit used in the book of Acts as well as in the New Testament. And I want us to notice a couple things. This filling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is for a task. 
So, so here we recognize this. For a task, we're getting ready to start. Indwelling, if we look at that word, and it's not always as cut and dry as we like it to be, but indwelling tends to be this mark of the Holy Spirit, this seal of the Holy Spirit that says, I'm coming to dwell with you, my people. It's not, so it's not so much a task, it's more of a relationship. Like, I dwell with you. I indwell you. Again, I think those things overlap. And then there's a third one we'll get to at the end, which is a baptism of the Spirit. John the Baptist talks about that. We find it other places in, in the epistles. And that seems to be something different. And one of the things I'm going to ask is, so when does that happen? Where does that happen? And that is a matter of debate. It's a matter of debate. So I'm going to give you what I think is my best option for that and recognize that that's up for dialogue and conversation. So we'll get to that toward the end of the text. So they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in other tongues. And you need to know this about the word tongues, that if we do a word study in the first century literature on this word, this is a common word. And in the first century world, it most often meant another language of another people group, okay? So for us, again, we import a whole lot of cultural debate from various denominational, and that's fine. We, we, we are what we are, okay? We need to have those conversations. But as they're reading it, and as Luke is writing it, he's writing it saying, these are languages. I am part of one of the small groups here who is um, doing ministry to one of the families from Afghanistan. Um, they speak Dari, and uh, the father and oldest son write in, I think it's Pashtu, I don't know how to pronounce that correctly. I've only been with them a couple different times. So I have an app on my phone that is teaching me how to say common phrases in that language. I've done this several times, Creole and Haiti and Spanish. Oh, I've forgotten more Spanish than what I would care to, re to, to admit. Um, but one of the things we know about this is that sometimes the language barrier is a barrier for ministry. It is. And this harkens back, doesn't it, all the way to the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11. So, can I just do a little bit of an Old Testament survey for you of some other things that might be happening here? Remember what we said about the sovereignty of God? Since the earliest church days, what we call the church fathers, the patristics, you probably don't care and that's fine. It's not mentioned here in the text, but the church has looked at this text and go and said, wow, in Jesus, we have this moment, this snapshot, this picture of the undoing of the Tower of Babel to where every people group and every language group are brought to worship the one name of Jesus and able to understand him in this one little snapshot. And, and I love this. This is what's true of miracles, oftentimes miracles of Jesus. And sometimes they are just that, a snapshot of something that's going to be more so true later. Revelation chapter 7 is a good example where every tribe, every language will be around the throne and they will be worshiping around the throne as one. What is it that's going to bring us together? See, in the church, what we believe is it's Jesus. And that's just part of the reason why even as people come and become our neighbors, literally our neighbors, why we go to them and we try to speak as best as we can to them about Jesus. And we try to welcome them. And even if that speaking is just in our acts of love and kindness and receiving them, because we want them to be one of those who is around that throne. Now, if this is also the undoing of the Tower of Babel, I find it interesting because what are we going to have in the book of Acts? This going out to all of the nations with the word of God. And it's going to go out to all these, all these people groups, starting with those who are Jewish. Notice they're Jewish here. And what's Paul going to do? He's going to go to the synagogue first, and then he's going to go to the Gentile. So we have that dynamic that's going to play out in these. I find that intriguing. Here's the other thing I want you to notice. We're living in a weird, this is going back to the disciples, would they have recognized? You're living in an unprecedented time. Bible translation ministries, this is true of multiple ones of them. So whether that's Wycliffe, whether that's Pioneer Bible Translators, they are right now trying to, they, they've come together uh, in the last 20 years and tried to build a timeline and a plan to translate at least the New Testament into every major language that could be received by every major people group. Now, there's a lot of debate about how to divide up people groups and language groups and all of that. You need to understand that because dialects are a thing um, and even more so like, like what we find in the book of Acts and some of the tribal uh, kinds of, of groups. But right now, Pioneer especially is, is estimating that by the year 2033, we will have started translation work in all of those languages. That has never, ever been true in the history of the church, that that, that was a foreseeable, like, 
We're almost there. I, I don't know what to do with all of that. I, I don't want to over-speculate. I just want to go, wow. Like, we have such an opportunity right now. We have a weird opportunity right now when it comes to communication. My wife, uh, for a while, taught students in China, and, and she can in other nations as well, taught them uh, English. Um, but we actually can get online and talk to people on the other side of the world from our living room. Could you imagine what Paul would have done with that? I mean, Paul's writing letters because that's the technology of his day. He's jumping on ships because that's the technology of his day. He's going down the Roman road because that's the technology of his day. Could you imagine what Paul would have done if he could like reach out to the entire world on a three by five screen, let alone going at the drop of a hat? You see, sometimes in the church, I'm afraid, we've gotten so distracted by some of our debates and disunity We've actually given ourselves as excuse not to do the very thing the Holy Spirit wants to equip us to do, which is take the word of God first to our neighbors and then a little bit further and a little bit further to the very end of the world. So I look at this text and I recognize some of these dynamics that are at play and I want to pay attention to them. Um, when it comes to the languages, I, I put the question that's down here. When it comes to the, the word tongues or these languages, um, I do believe that in the book of Acts, we clearly find that these are languages that were known languages. That's why when, um, and we're going to ask the question, who are these? Is this the 12 or is this 120 going out speaking um, in these other languages? They are heard in the languages where people said, this is in my own dialect. These Galileans who they swallow their, their, their uh, uh, syllables, they, they speak guttural uh, syllables. Um, when, when they speak, they sound like we would say redneck, okay? We would say they sound like they're from the sticks. I wouldn't say that. We would say that, all right? And so people recognize this about Galileans. They're unschooled, ordinary men. But here they are speaking not just in a foreign language, but in the exact <coughs> dialect of that foreign language. Oh, like, I know this is true for me because when I learn a foreign language and I try to speak it to someone else, they laugh at me. So what do I know? I have not arrived at that point, right, where I'm speaking in their dialect. And you know this when someone else is trying to fumble around. Please give people grace if they're trying to fumble around. If they're trying to fumble around, please extend them grace. And in that moment, in that moment, you have to recognize this is something God is doing that is spectacular. And, and it's this moment that is this key moment in the church. Now, here's my question to you. Does God always have to act in a way that's spectacular? In fact, if we look at the Bible, we recognize he actually doesn't always act in that way. Those are actually, that's why it's spectacular, because it's not the norm. So what happens? Well, I don't want to put, remember I said the week one, I don't want to put the Holy Spirit in a box and say the Holy Spirit can't do something. But nor do I want to put the Holy Spirit in a box by saying the Holy Spirit has to do the same thing all the time. So can I just ask some questions that I wrestle with, with this kind of text, but also with the world that we live in? Can the Holy Spirit, can the Holy Spirit at times allow someone or someones the opportunity to communicate in a way that is miraculous, whether that be speaking in a foreign language that they don't know, whether that be communicating to someone in a heart language, in other words, to, toward their emotions or something that only they would know? that the Holy Spirit has prompted and put in the mind of that person who's trying to communicate the gospel? Can the Holy Spirit do that? I always want to say, absolutely, the Holy Spirit can do that. Because I never want to say the Holy Spirit can't. Nor do I want to look at something and without testing the, spirits, testing the spirits against Scripture, if it doesn't contradict Scripture, nor do I want to look at someone else or something that the Holy Spirit might be doing and say, that's definitely not from the Holy Spirit. Because I don't know, the Holy Spirit might be doing something that I don't expect. So even as I look at other de denominational groups or other experiences or expressions of what they believe the Holy Spirit can or can't do, I, I want to stand in a place that is with humility, coming to the word of God and saying, I don't know everything about the Holy Spirit. He is mysterious. Here's what I seems to happen in the book of Acts, but I also then also don't want to expect that the Holy Spirit has to do that and my faith is illegitimate if I don't have that experience in my life. Because I've also seen people who, have their faith wrecked because the Holy Spirit's not doing a miracle or the Holy Spirit's not giving this, this experience or the Holy Spirit's not doing this act through them or through their church. And, and so to me, that is a danger of both extremes of how we see this text, but also the Holy Spirit. We can go other places about it as well. Yeah. Is the 120, is that actually a finite number? Where do they it's a, it's a good question. Let me, let me start. Uh, Acts chapter one is where the 120 are mentioned, gathered together in Acts chapter one. 
But here's my question. This is going next to who is that that's actually speaking in tongues. So it's a great question. We have two numbers mentioned in the book of Acts chapter 1. 120 are there, uh, and they're gathered. But at the very end, what we have at the very end of chapter 1, if you go to the very last verse, it's the 11, and then Matthias, the 12th, that's the last number that's mentioned. So one of my questions is this. Is this the 120, or is this, is this the 12? Acts chapter 1, verse 26, immediate context, says 12. That doesn't necessarily solve the problem, but let me put some other puzzle pieces back together. Later on, in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, when Peter gets up to speak, who does he get up to speak with? The other 11. Well, why? Well, because they were the ones speaking in all these dialects. Therefore, they stand up as a co-witness with Peter to what he's about to say of, what's going on here? Are you all drunk? And so the 12 stand up and go, we're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Now, I have alcoholics in my family. Some of them can be drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning, right? Um, but the reality is, is, like, that's not a normal thing, right? Especially on a Jewish, by the way, holiday, okay? Because they would have been fasting through the morning sacrifices, okay? So there, there's some, it's okay to laugh, by the way, right? So, like, there's some humor with Peter. He's a fisherman, by the way, okay? So this is very, look, we're not drunk, it's only nine in the morning, right? You kind of kind of just picture this, all, all of a sudden, the, the humor that's in this story. Um, and so that, that instance, chapter 2, verse 14, the fact that they all appear in one place is not conclusive to me. We don't know if this is the upper room. Some houses, the courtyard, could fit a large group of people. We see that in Jesus's ministry. So it could be 120 or 12. That's not conclusive to me. But the fact that they're all Galileans to me is a little bit of a hint as well. Because you start getting a bigger group and you start to, start to expect that they'd be you know, bringing in people from other regions as well, especially Judea, the Jerusalem area. So I tend to lean in my understanding of this text that it is the 12, Matthias now included, end of chapter one, that are those who are given this, this special experience, this special mark that is a sign for everyone else that God is doing what he said he was going to do in the Old Testament and he's sending his spirit and he is going to renew and I would say cause a new covenant that was promised in Joel and in the prophets and the spirit or his presence was that divine sign. The 12 are the representatives of this new thing that is about ready to take place. So then others are observers of that. Does that go to answer that question? It's a great question. What you'll find in a lot of like commentaries is they, they won't even ask the question. There's kind of just an assumption, well, it looks like it's a big deal, big crowd, and so therefore it must be the 120. But if I start to look at those pieces of evidence, I go, ah, maybe it's a little bit more limited. And, and again, maybe I would go, maybe not all of us should ex expect, that's always a bad thing with the Holy Spirit, maybe not all of us should expect this to happen for us every time. Even in, in the book of Acts, one of the things you'll notice, the Holy Spirit does special things in special moments. The next time this is going to happen, guess what's, where it's going to be? The first time, Gentiles are brought into the church. So it's a lot of firsts, isn't it? So we have this question, and sometimes missionaries, we study missions um, at Ozark, sometimes missionaries say, I find it interesting, the Holy Spirit does unique things, weird things, things you don't expect, on the forefront of what God is doing in new places and new ground. That's intriguing to me. Um, we have stories of, of those who were coming from closed Muslim countries who were having dreams about uh, Jesus. Uh, is it not Jesus? It's, uh, I can't remember how they pronounce his name. But anyhow, about Jesus. And they're coming. Yeah, I think so. They're, they're coming and they're asking questions about Jesus because of a dream they had. That's intriguing to me. Um, and, and so can the Holy Spirit then cause someone to be able to communicate in a way that's outside of their, I think the Holy Spirit can if the Holy Spirit wants to, and I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to do anything in my life he wants to do if I'm yielding myself up to him. Do I wish that sometimes the Holy Spirit would allow me to speak in a, 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 in a word that would communicate to this family that I'm part of? Absolutely, I do. But you know what? The Holy Spirit can also use me to communicate to them in ways that are not words, that are expressions of love. So we're, we don't have time to study 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, but Paul talks about love. He talks about the greatest gift being that of love. See, we get distracted because we want to have these things for ourselves to feel our faith, to feel like our faith is legitimate, to feel like we are powerful or that God's work in us is powerful. And maybe God just wants us to sometimes be humble and love. And so sometimes in my own life, I've had to wrestle with that. Do I want the Holy Spirit to do something big because I want people to see me? We're going to see someone in the book of Acts that that's a problem for. 
or do I want the Holy Spirit to do something big in me because other people need to see Jesus through me? Well, probably the best way to do that is by self-sacrifice and love. That's the clearest picture of Jesus. Greater love has no one than this. Lay down your life for a friend. Okay, there's probably plenty of questions about the Holy Spirit. We can come back to some of that in just a moment, but I, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the text. Um, we haven't yet even got to Peter's sermon, and it's 10.05, all right? Um, notice this list of nations of those who are gathered there when it comes to uh, verse 7. Now, notice, they're amazed. They're astonished. They have no idea. They're all speaking Galilean, verse 7. How is it that we hear this in our own native language, our own dialect? And then we have this list of nations. Now, if you took the map, if you take the map, which there's a, this is a great website, by the way, okay, that uh, has visuals. In fact, they have a great yearly Bible reading plan on the website. If you can read like the little copyright information up there, that's okay if you can't. Here's what's interesting. If you actually group these together, Paul is moving from east to west. And then he jumps back and has one little, after Rome, he has one little mention of a west and goes back east. So you could actually take on this map and you could put Parthia, Mede, and Elam and, and put a one and recognize that's east. You could Cappadocia, Macedonia, and Judea and be like, that's number two. That's moving a little bit further. And just draw these like meridian lines, not meridian lines. What would that be? Yeah, prime meridian, meridian lines going across toward Rome. Notice where we get. We get to Rome. There's a foreshadowing already in the text that says the gospel is going to Rome and no one's going to stop it. Where are we going to end in the book of Acts? In Rome, Paul speaking the word of God fearlessly so that people might, even though he's under arrest, nothing is going to stop the word of God. I love what Paul says in 2 Timothy. The word of God is not chained. It's not bound. Sometimes I feel like the word of God is bound because I'm limited. And God's going, uh, yeah, no. Okay, I can do whatever I want. Even with your limitations, even if you're in shackles, the word of God is not bound. So even the groups that are here, guess what they're going to do after the festival? Same thing people do at Thanksgiving. Get back on American Airlines, okay, I know. Roman Airlines, they're going to get back, and they're going to go back home. What's going to happen with this moment of what happened? Seeds are going to scatter. This is very intentional. It's foreshadowing. Guess, guess what's going to happen when Paul shows up in various cities? Oh, you already know about Jesus and the resurrection? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he came back from Passover and told us, oh, God's cultivating soil ahead of the church. Do you think he maybe does that in like our world as well? Absolutely he does, okay? And sometimes I've had people come to me and come to Christ and I'm like, How, who told you that? And, and God has done some of that work ahead of time, which is really helpful. So these people groups are there and they are representative. Um, we've already mentioned the acts of the Holy Spirit. I, I wanna kind of give you this, this promise as we unpack. We've not said everything about the Holy Spirit in this lesson today. Can I just acknowledge that? Like we've not had every conversation about the Holy Spirit. So what I want to do is build a placeholder for you in your mind to say, this is one of the acts of the Holy Spirit. We're going to continue to ask, so what does the Holy Spirit do and equip us for throughout the rest of the book of Acts? And try to build a framework to ask this question, what does the Holy Spirit want to do in your life and in my life and in the life of the church? Can I start with this starting block? The Holy Spirit wants to equip you to do something you can't do on your own. Can I start with that starting block? The Holy Spirit wants to equip you to do something you can't do on your own. And it's probably not just something spectacular, sensational, so that people pay attention to you or so that your faith feels legitimized. It probably has something to do with telling other, other people about Jesus. Because it has to do with the ministry, the mission, and even when we face opposition, like Jesus. But in the book of John, and I, maybe these are three more words you can write in this block. In the book of John, Jesus told us when the Holy Spirit comes the paraclete, which means comforter, he's going to do these kinds of things. Can I give you three R words that kind of summarizes those in this little block, the Acts of the Holy Spirit? Number one, the Holy Spirit's going to reveal. Uh, so oftentimes the Holy Spirit opens up scripture or, or reminds us about Jesus, who he is. So the Holy Spirit's going to reveal. The second word is actually that word remind. The Holy Spirit's going to remind. Now, sometimes remind means convict, like you're getting ready to step into sin and the Holy Spirit's there and speaks, that's not who you are. You're a disciple of Jesus. You made a decision to put Jesus first in your life. You made a decision to love other people above loving yourself. You made a decision to be a person of integrity. Holy Spirit has the ability to do that. Now, Paul says we can actually sear or, or actually callous our conscience when we don't listen to the Holy Spirit. 
Do you, do you think that that changes a person if the Holy Spirit is constantly? Now, again, it doesn't sound very miraculous, but it is. Do you think that could change a person if they listen to the Holy Spirit over the course of a lifetime or over the course of a decade, if they listen to the Holy Spirit prompting them, those different things? I guarantee you it can. See, I have people ask me the question about like, my own story, my own testimony, and it's really hard to get at because I don't know who I would be had it not been for the Holy Spirit prompting me at certain... Now, that doesn't mean I always listened, but I know the majority of times I, I have tried to, tried to listen to the Holy Spirit. And, and again, you, made, you make like 30,000 decisions a day. Well, that's what Microsoft says, by the way. So, so if you make that many decisions, the Holy Spirit's like prompting you to look more like Jesus, look more like Jesus, look more like Jesus. Do you think that's going to change you? Yeah, it will. But it's not legalism, is it? it? It's the Holy Spirit coming in and recreating. So here's the three words. Reveal, remind, and renew or recreate. He wants to make you into who God designed you to be in the first place. So he wants to speak wisdom that is wisdom at the very bedrock of creation from Jesus. And he wants you to look more like Jesus, the one that we are created to look like from the very beginning. And so don't be surprised if the Holy Spirit works in ways that you don't expect him to work in your own life. Okay, I'm going to turn the page because we need to get to Peter's sermon. We can move a little bit more quickly through here. Uh, Peter stands up with the 12. It's nine o'clock in the morning. Everyone says they're drunk. Peter says, I'm not drunk. And then he walks through the Old Testament. He walks through the prophet Joel. One of the things I want you to pay attention to with this text from the, the, the prophecy, we can call it that, of Joel, is that this phrase, last days, is there. And oftentimes this prompts the question, so when are the last days? And as I mean, I'm speaking probably for the majority of us in the room, but maybe not everybody, that's okay. As Americans, we tend to think ethnocentric, which means we're in the middle of history and history revolves around us. That's not an indictment. It just tends to be true. C.S. Lewis, oh, I love this phrase. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. Does that sound like a British idea? Chronological snobbery. It means the further you get along, the more you think that the people back then had no idea what they were talking about and the more that you think you're the center of everything. Okay, so ethnocentrism, or I like C.S. Lewis's chronological snobbery. We tend to think that about the last days. Oh, someday things are going to get really bad around here. You heard what happened with Russia and Ukraine right now. But if you actually look at the New Testament and how they looked at last days, they were borrowing that language from the Old Testament, recognizing the Old Testament fulfillment was actually happening in the midst of them right there. So when Joel prophesied the Messiah was going to come back, the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to judge the nations and unfaithful Israel, and then he was going to gather the nations for judgment, and he was going to gather the nations for reward, that would be the beginning of the last days. What's just happened in, in Acts chapter 2? The gathering of the nations, the coming of the Holy Spirit, all of those things in Joel 2 are happening right here. And so we have this quote by Peter. He picks a sermon text, and he says, Joel 2, look at what's happening here. And so God has now poured out his Spirit on his people. They have been waiting for God to act. Back in Ezekiel, guess what happened to the temple? The glory of God left the temple. They didn't see a visual manifestation of the Holy Spirit again at the temple. That's a big deal. The Pharisees really wanted it. Sadducees really wanted it. It hadn't really happened at the temple as they know it. Herod's temple that's standing in Jerusalem, about to be destroyed in 70 AD. But all of a sudden, in these people that come into the temple... We have this presence of God and the glory of God through this people come into the, I mean, you see what's going on here for just a second? Comes into the temple. The presence of God is now being revealed, but the temple is no longer the building. It's now the people. And those people are now going to go out everywhere as the temple. That's what Paul calls us as the church, the temple. The presence of God dwells with us. We go with him. Why could you do that? How could you do that in the temple of God? Because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we take the presence of God as a light and the presence got out into the world everywhere we go, every city, every town, every village, every nation. That's significant of what's happening here in this imagery as these people come together. But even as Peter preaches this sermon, notice how he preaches it in the components of the sermon. He uses the Old Testament. He talks about the life of Jesus. He talks about the death of Jesus. And then he spends the majority of his time, I think it's like 10 verses, on the resurrection of Jesus. That's not a bad sermon outline, by the way. Okay, Here's what the Old Testament had to say. Let me tell you about the life of Jesus, who he was. Let me tell you about the death of Jesus and what that meant. Let me tell you about the resurrection of Jesus and how that changes everything. And he uses the Psalms for this. He talks about David talking about in the Psalms, with faith, you will not let your Holy One be abandoned to decay. You could go back and read these Psalms, by the way. 
And I'd recommend that. But the problem is, is Peter's like, David's tomb is here. In fact, when I backpacked in Israel, um, we, we came to a sarcophagus casket kind of room where th- there's a claim. This is kind of true in Jerusalem right now. It's kind of Disneyfied, to be honest. It's like, it's like archaeological Disney. Um, but there, there's a claim that this is, this is the, the tomb or the, the um, body of David. And, and so there's no, I mean, there's no question that David was buried, that he died. And so the question became like, so how could David say that? Well, he had to have faith, didn't he? That there would be a resurrection, even when there was no evidence for a resurrection yet. Think about the significance of that. You want to talk about faith? Abraham, David, they were looking into the future saying, God, I know that you can do this. Then we look back on that same event of the resurrection of Jesus and go, God, I know you did this. Okay, so Jesus is the fulfillment of David's faith of what he was looking forward to in his own life. He, he, he expected that God would raise him from the dead. But there was an ultimate fulfillment in one of his offspring and that offspring was the king, Jesus, who was risen from the dead. So Peter uses this Old Testament text to, to highlight the resurrection and the hope that we have in Jesus. Now he talks about the cross and he says, you did this in, as well as the Gentiles. We did this. And notice what it says. They were cut to the heart. They were convicted, weren't they? Like they felt guilty. I had a conversation with someone this week who asked the question, what's the purpose of guilt or shame? Paul says this about guilt. Godly guilt, godly shame produces repentance. But there is also, Paul acknowledges, an ungodly shame that just destroys you. So we want to encourage you that this cut to the heart is a response that says, I need Jesus. And so here's what I want to do. Because it's about 10, 16, I want to kind of just touch on it. And then I'll do what Netflix does. I'll do this every week. Okay, we're going to unpack a little bit more this, what shall we do? I'm guilty. We are broken. It's not just me, it's we. We are broken people. And we need new life, resurrected life. Not just life out there in the future, but we need new life right now. New life in the Bible, by the way, is always life that starts now in the present and extends into eternity. It's not just a, uh, you know, some scholars say, get out of hell free card. It is, I need a new life now, and I need that new life to start now, but be a seed that extends all the way out into eternity. So it's new life today. How do we get that? What shall we do? How do I respond? And so we'll hear in Peter's sermon, we'll start there, we'll unpack it a little bit more, but Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Okay, and now we'll notice, for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That brings a full circle, doesn't it? I asked a question about baptism in the Holy Spirit. Here's my understanding. We'll unpack it a bit more. Is that we are baptized in the Spirit when we are baptized into Christ. That's my understanding of it. Is that when we, when we cross through the waters of baptism, we are promised that we will be, have the indwelling of the Spirit and be empowered by the Holy Spirit as well. Again, this more, it'll take us 20 minutes, 30 minutes next time to unpack that. But I do want you to hear this. We're going to start with the idea next week of repentance. Repentance is more than just feeling bad. That's the cut to the heart phrase. Repentance is a decision to change your allegiance. In the ancient world, you repented when you changed your citizenship. So instead of being Roman, you decided to be Parthian. You actually made a declaration to change your citizenship. Instead of being from Ephesus, you decided I'm from Corinth. You moved your citizenship. Instead of being a Chiefs fan, you decided you're, I don't know why you would, okay? I'm a Broncos fan, but I'm a Chiefs fan today, all right? So there... So, <laughs> So, I mean, there's a, dynamic, there's a dynamic there of allegiance, isn't it? Repentance is changing your allegiance. It's also a military word that talks about marching in a different direction. That's a little bit of an oversimplistic statement of it. It's more the allegiance thing than the marching in a different direction, but you can see how that would be the same thing. So repent. We'll talk about baptize. Be baptized. Those are the two things you do. What shall we do? Is baptism doing something? Well, it is, but here's the interesting thing. It's not. I'm actually don't, I can't baptize myself. That's the weird thing. The church has to baptize me. So I need the church, and I need Jesus, and I can't do anything. That's why baptism is so important, because you can't do anything. You just need to say yes. And the church welcomes you in, and Jesus welcomes you in, and gives you everything. And what do you get? Forgiveness of sins, gift of the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty good deal. So that's where we'll start next week. And then we'll ask, so how did that change the church? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What does the Holy Spirit do? It changes the church. They become devoted to the teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, to each other. 
See, the Holy Spirit, the coming Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 is more about changing us to look more like Jesus than it is about some miraculous moment that happened in that particular moment that was the catalyst for all the fruit the Holy Spirit really did want to bear in the church. So if you look like Jesus today, maybe it's because the Holy Spirit has been working in your life in more subtle ways, more powerful ways than you ever really imagined. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word today. I pray that you'll find me faithful, God. God, in the ways that I am either ignorant, um, God, are, are the ways that uh, I'm misinformed. I pray your spirit speak truth. And God, I pray that you will guide us and lead us to look more like Jesus. God, to fulfill his ministry and mission in the world that you've called us to fulfill, each as individuals, also as a corporate body together. God, as we face opposition and um, God, even as we face uh, what might be insult, I, I pray that God, we can celebrate it, um, that we can find it as joy, like, like James says, to count it joy. Um, because we have been counted worthy of being your disciple. We pray these things as we go this week in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll see you next week, friends. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.